Hi there. I'm Francoise Von Trapp, and this is the 3D Insights Podcast. Hey, everyone. Now, as we all know, events of the last two years that are beyond our control, things like the pandemic, uh, geopolitical issues, trade wars, and the war in Ukraine have had a significant impact on the semiconductor supply chain, sending us scrambling for workarounds and playing catch-up. But what if we had been better prepared to proactively address these issues? At Semi-ISS, we heard a compelling talk by Bindia Vakil titled, Designing Risk-Ready Supply Chains for the Post-COVID World. And she's here with me right now to talk about this and the company that she founded to mitigate risk. So welcome, Bindia. Thank you for having me. I really loved your talk. Um, can you share first, before we get started, a little bit about your background and how you came to start Resilink? Absolutely. Um, I come from the sourcing world, companies like Cisco, Flextronix, Broadcom, and procurement, particularly direct materials procurement. And um, this is 2000 to 2010. Always felt like I was being very reactive, playing whack-a-mole a little bit. Um, chasing shortages. And really, you know, that period was very disruptive too. Um, we saw obviously 2011, the big dot-com crash. We saw the 9-11 and some of the logistics issues. Then we had the 2006 Taiwan earthquake where the undersea cable was severed, then Chengdu earthquake, and then the swine flu pandemic and right. the, <laughs> remember, yeah, the bankruptcies. Yeah. So that was my supply chain background. You know, it was one disruption after another. And so um, what I learned is that small parts have massive impact. You know, mm -hmm. the things that we're not watching really carefully, like tantalum capacitors, which is like less than a cent cost, but can bring down an economy, which is what happened with the dot-com crash. And so when I went to Cisco and had the opportunity to work more proactively in managing risk, um, I saw that data can make a huge difference. You know, something as simple as knowing which countries and what factories make the parts you buy can allow you to really be more proactive about anticipating the mm -hmm. next issue. And so I left Cisco to start Resilink in 2010. And we've been mapping supply chains since then, monitoring crisis and ongoing disruptions for our customers. Okay, so uh, how does mapping work? So when you map the supply chain, you really establish a collaborative and um, transparent um, process working directly with your suppliers who you, it's it's almost a contract of trust because what you're really saying to your suppliers is, um, trust us, be transparent, and we won't violate that trust. And the transparency on part of the supplier is disclosing to their customers what factories make the parts that they buy. Do they have a backup site available to build these parts mm -hmm. if the primary site were to be disrupted? Where is that located? How long would they start shipping from the backup site? Um, which parts? Right. Sometimes the supplier has 50 factories in 20 countries and I buy 200 parts from them. Well, what part makes what 
Uh-huh. <laughs> what site makes what part? Um, who are your critical suppliers? Where are they located? Because sometimes the supplier is not directly impacted, but one of their suppliers could be disrupted. And so mapping gives you, and now think about it, right? A high-tech company or an automotive company. Um, in my world, I've seen one company, 40,000 direct part numbers that come from 1,500 suppliers around the world. So that's a lot of complexity, And so mapping gives you a single digital repository where all those factories get in one place so that then I can see where my geographic hotspots are. Mm -hmm. Or do I have things in my supply chain such as 10 of my tier one's direct suppliers are buying from the same second tier supplier? And that is my failure point because if something happens to one of those, you know, second or third tier suppliers, 10, 12 50 of my direct suppliers might not ship to me. So mapping is putting that information repository together, making it available to right people within the supply chain function, and then monitor. It's a data asset, really, Mm -hmm. for the company, because that data asset allows you to manage risk, anticipate when something happens. Now, let's say you're monitoring news events in real time, um, a flood gets alerted, right? And let's say Viet- Vietnam and you have a, two, a town or two get evacuated. Well, normally you might not even pick up that, but because you've mapped your supply chain, because you're monitoring news, you know that I have two sites in that region of evacuation. Five parts come from there. And these are critical parts for some of my high revenue products. And now that disruption might not actually hit you for another eight weeks, 10 weeks sometimes because you have some inventory. But now you've bought yourself 10 extra weeks to respond to that (laughs) instead of reacting. So this is the power of data, right? This is the power of data. You're basically using this information as arbitrage to give yourself multiple options. 10 weeks uh, early warning means I can decide, start now deciding who is getting what, start offering substitutes. I have the ability to discount another product. I have the ability to go call all my backup suppliers, start working with the alternate site. I have so many options with 10, 12 week early warning. But when I'm reacting last minute because I was not aware, because I had not mapped the supply chain, that's when I get I'm at the mercy of the Okay, event. can you give me an example, for instance, in the current chip shortage situation, the reaction of the industry has been to um, add capacity. So would you, is that an example of a reaction, reactive approach versus a proactive approach? So interestingly, the chip shortage is actually one of those long-term megatrends um, where you know, you have a you have a supply chain that has inherently been disrupted with some major capacity issues. So yes, mapping definitely helps here as well. But again, this is not one of those things that just because you have mapping, you're you're going to be resilient forever. Even you know, mapping gives you early warning. It gives you that early reaction time, but it's not a panacea for an event of this severity and magnitude. But because you asked, I have a great example, which is from the automotive industry, okay. because two comparative companies, right? You looked at, if you were watching the news last year, um, in Feb, 
in um, uh, May of 2021, Ford announced two and a half billion dollar pre-tax profit hit uh, because of the semiconductor issue. By then, a lot of the other automotive companies had also started experiencing lines down, factory down, layoffs, etc. And here comes Toyota in that same month. There was an article in Bloomberg and Supply Chain Dive where Toyota talked about their supply chain mapping and monitoring program, where they had been mapping deep into the tiers, multiple um, suppliers down and stockpiling inventory for about 1,500 parts that were the highest impacting parts to their business. So while everyone in automotive went down, Toyota was actually protected all the way up until the end of August, which is when Toyota first started experiencing lines down. So they bought themselves four extra months because of their mapping, monitoring, and uh, mitigation program. And actually what's really powerful about that story is that CNBC actually reported in December of 2021 that Toyota had taken the number one position for the first time in the car industry. Wow. Okay. So that's a really good example. One, I wrote down this statement from your talk. We can grow if we can deliver. If we can't deliver, we won't grow. And that the supply chain is sh showing us that it has failed. If we don't address supply chain issues that are inherent, it will be a key obstacle in our ability to achieve growth projections, which according to this um, event as $1 trillion profits by 2030. Yet there's all these headwinds that say that that probably isn't going to be the goal that we reach. But in any case, can you speak to this at all? Yeah, you know, um, supply chains are only as good as the amount of material we can get to the customer. And if we can get material to customers, then we make revenue. If we make revenue, we make profit. Um, the problem is that right now we can get some material, but we can't get all of it. And the disruptions are coming at us from way too many um, directions to give you some sense of the numbers, right? In a typical year, pre-pandemic, Resilink would alert our customers about maybe 50 things, news alerts and events a week. Um, right now, we're averaging about 200 a wow. week. Um, last year, we as an industry saw 1,400 factory fires across semiconductor, high-tech, consumer mm -hmm. electronics, et cetera, but, but still. Um, that compared to about 250, 300 a year. We saw record climate issues. Half the world is in drought. The other half is wet. <laughs> right. And it's extremes on both sides. We see semiconductor industry having a huge uh, requirement for uninterrupted water uninterrupted power, um, labor shortage, skilled labor. Um, we have single points of failure that we talk about, like a TSMC in Taiwan, but we also have single points of failure across this industry, like we saw Neon with Ukraine. I mean, these are coming up to us now as surprises, but they aren't surprises. These are known sources that we just they're surprising because we didn't bother to really map and find out. Now we have another issue, which is the Belgium side from 3M 
that makes coolant. And that site has been shut down because of its environmental issues indefinitely, actually. And 80% of the coolant capacity comes from this one site. So there are so many failure points. Then you take the, some of the other, so this is gases, there are, there are other specialty chemicals. You'll take the commodities, rare earths. I mean, there are so many substrates, substrates, so many dependencies. So I just, I just want to say, you know, that growth is possible if, and you can grow as fast as you want if your supply chain is secure. And unfortunately, the supply chain is not secure right now. We are seeing these issues pop up. And now we have a COVID resurgence in China. And we have all the issues with the Russia sanctions, which is causing, and the sanctions are going to cause tremendous pain for Europe because they are so incredibly reliant on um, natural gas, power, coal, and uh, all of that from Russia. And I mean, there's no real backup plan at this stage. Um, so I think there are too many headwinds to say with confidence that we can achieve this growth as an industry that is ahead of us. And, and I will say semiconductor industry has always been on an incredible growth trajectory. And we're talking now about 5G wearables, you know, everything really mm -hmm. well, has a semiconductor roadmap. Yeah, yesterday, um, I think Bob Johnson pointed out that to reach the um, trillion dollar mark, we actually have to double the size of our footprint in industry from now until then, which is only eight years, right? Yeah. Um, and with all of these things, it's going to be tough. But how can we use mapping? You said it's not just a mapping. It's a combination of mapping and, um, real, was it real-time? Monitoring. Real-time monitoring. What about, you know, making the decisions of, of having multiple sources? I mean, what, what are the risks of having too many sources of something? Yeah, multiple sourcing is, I mean, almost, um, there are two things that we talk about almost as if they will solve all our problems is multiple sourcing is one. And then the just in time versus just mm -hmm. in case, right? We talked about both of these as if, if we do those things, everything will be fine. But the reality is that in the semiconductor industry in particular, Having double two two sources is often not an option. You have so much IP, so much technology. You don't often have that much volume to award to two sources, right? And and so and then having two sources adds cost and complexity to the day to day business and operations. So unless your source is financially not secure, you almost are better off having one source that has a backup site available okay. and working with that supplier in a spirit of transparency, collaboration, partnership to make that supplier more resilient by sharing more forecasts with them, um, participating in a, you know, giving them money almost to have a backup site ready to go within a fast turnaround and having a capacity option at that site. So you have preferential allocation. So there are other things we can do. Um, but it takes changing procurement mindset mm -hmm. because procurement is conditioned to just hitting up suppliers for cost savings. And this idea of working with transparency on a risk mitigation that helps me protect continuity of supply, that is revenue assurance for the supplier. It's a win-win. This is a new concept. 
So it isn't something that our our people are necessarily bought into or that leadership has necessarily thought of. So when we start thinking about supply chain, we default to the, oh, but my supply chain people are here for cost savings and inventory reduction. That's kind of their job. That's the mindset. So there's there's a lot of thinking that we need to do as an industry, how we run these relationships, particularly when these are not commoditized relationships. These are not, this is not my apparel supplier. I can get a blue shirt from that supplier if this blue shirt supplier goes down. This is not that. These are suppliers with tremendous IP. Our fates are intertwined and we're treating them like the blue shirt supplier. Mm. That's my problem. (laughs) For instance, with materials, it takes a really long time to qualify a new material into a process. So you're better off having the same supplier that has multiple sites so that you can get the backup supply and you don't have to change your process or re or requalify your process. And quality, it's all about quality and yield. I mean, in semiconductor, everything has to be perfect. It takes years to get the process to that level of perfection. Even with the same supplier, getting an alternate site to perform at that level of precision is not always easy. And so having another source and developing that, I mean, it's just incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm saying, you know, alternate sourcing is, is, it's nice on certain things where you have the volumes, where it's fairly commoditized, wherever you can justify it, you should absolutely do it. But I'm saying in semiconductor, particularly as an industry, I think having those tighter supplier partnerships and more integration and transparency and collaboration would go a lot farther. So how do we have and foster this collaboration? I mean, the semiconductor industry is a global industry. So how do we foster this collaboration with the current geopolitical issues on both between, you know, the trade sanctions between the U.S. and China and then, of course, the current situation in Ukraine and Russia? Yeah, it starts with prioritization, right? You're going, again, if I go back to, I have 1,500 suppliers, thousands, tens of thousands of parts. Um, the first thing is understanding which parts can bring you down, right? Mm. Um, and what I mean bring you down is there are some parts in any product and any company, if you don't have those parts, you can't ship billions of dollars of revenue, So who are those suppliers that are single source that go into a lot of your products, right? So that if that one part isn't there or that one supplier is not available, you're basically shut down. So when when we start looking at our supply chain with that kind of a mindset of what's most important is what is... What happens if that isn't there? Mm-hmm. You know, that tells you what's most important always. And so supply chains need to first stop thinking about everything in terms of spend and how much I spend with this supplier. But what you're critical to me, because I may not spend a lot with you, but if you go down, I may spend half a million with you, but if you go down, two billion of my revenue can't be shipped. Mm-hmm. So you're incredibly critical. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make sure I am tightly connected. I know how you're doing financially. I know how you're, where you're located, where you build my parts, how much backup inventory you have or what backup site you have for me, how much capacity. I mean, I want to know everything about mm-hmm. you. 
And in return, I will make sure I don't bring in another supplier right. and replace you. And that's my promise or, or go around you to somebody. So, so that's that contract of trust and transparency and partnership and collaboration where both companies come together and develop a long-term um, partnership around risk and continuity of supply. Okay. I want to shift gears slightly. Um, you also, you know, we, we started talking about the topic of reshoring and that the U.S. and other countries are trying to build self-sufficient supply chains. What are your thoughts on this? Um, I believe in, um, I think reshoring is, is fine as a goal for a company, country to have, but in reality, um, no country in the world has all the natural resources, all the labor, all the materials than everything that you need in order to really have a sustained supply chain. So I actually almost call it re-globalizing because, you know, we have developed some um, uh, competition, let's say, with certain countries around mm -hmm. the world that we want to sort of develop some resiliency around and self-sufficiency around. And that means the world is segmenting to some extent it, it, around new partnerships. Mm -hmm. And those partnerships for the U.S. in particular means we need to look at our supply chain closer to home with our partners, our neighbors around Mexico, Central America, which have largely been ignored. And to me, that means our government needs to develop almost like the new NAFTA with um, uh, land-based transportation, faster lane processing, faster customs processing, because of, again, see what happened with the ports, 100 ships waiting. So we have too many of these failure points, whether it's our procurement and manufacturing infrastructure. If we don't look at that, then let's look at our logistics infrastructure, look at what happened with Suez Canal. If you're in Europe, those should be <laughs> really scaring you. So every country, I mean, every region, I should say, should be regionalizing around their economies and their countries and developing those regional partnerships. And that's where we see the world going. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. I could talk to you all day about this, but we are running out of time. Um, so how can people learn more about you and what you do? Well, um, visit our website, first of all, uh, reslink.com, R-E-S-I-L-I-N-C. Uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. And, and we uh, do we do have show notes, so I'll put all of that in the show notes. Awesome. And uh, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. There's lots more to come, so tune in next time to the 3D Insights Podcast. The 3D Insights Podcast is a production of 3D Insights, LLC.